Well, we've been beginning by remembering what T.S. Eliot reminded us of in Little Gidding, which is the end of all our exploring is to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. So we want to start where we want to end up, which is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because that is the great Trinitarian mystery into which Christ came to call us. And this is session number six of something called the Emmaus Road Initiative. And this year's theme for the eight-part series is inspiring a wholehearted faith in a half-hearted age. And the premise of our series is that what we know by faith is real knowledge, even though we didn't acquire it by empirical or rational or logical means. We acquired it by faith, but it's real knowledge. And but we have to be able to account to the world for that knowledge. And, and also it's the most interesting thing to think about. We look at the heart of our faith, which is the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. And we ask ourselves, why did it take those things to save us? Christians are people who have the answer before they have the question. And the answer is Christ. What's the question? We don't know the predicament we're in until we investigate what it took to save us. So we've been asking the last three months, we've been asking these central questions. And tonight we're going to ask, why did it take the resurrection to save us? I'm going to start by quoting, it will not be a surprise to those of you who have been around, Hans Urs von Balthasar, the great Swiss Catholic theologian of the 20th century. Von Balthasar says, quote, Everyone knows that the New Testament was conceived and written in the light of the resurrection. The gift of certain faith in the resurrection turned the world upside down. Without it, it would have been pointless to found a Christian community, write a Pauline letter, or compose a gospel. The resurrection cast its light backward on the enigmatic, peculiar existence of the man from Nazareth, above all on the failure of his career, the crucifixion, which at the time seemed to have defeated all his expectations and promises, end quote. The question about the resurrection is, what does it mean? We believe in the resurrection, but what are its implications? And one of the questions I want to ask tonight is, to whom is it good news? First of all, the resurrection is an event like everything else central to Christianity. Christianity is about events. Either these events happen or they didn't. If they didn't happen, we're wasting our time. If they did, the world has been changed by them. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, and so on. These are events. And the central one being the resurrection. There are various ways in which we can account for the fact that this event took place. One of them is that the disciples of Jesus were cowardly. They betrayed him, denied him, ran for cover, locked themselves behind closed doors. And then, in a heartbeat, they became the most courageous people in the world, most of them going to their deaths from martyrdom. So something must have happened in the meantime. On the other hand, as the theologian Juan Serra puts it, the resurrection took all thought by surprise. So people think, well... The resurrection was an experience, meaning a subjective experience that people who were really hoping for it talked themselves into. But the truth is nobody was really hoping for it because it wasn't even on the radar screen. This, by the way, came out in the last two verses of the transfiguration story we had two weeks ago on Sunday. They read as follows. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. There was no category for this. Of course, there was the idea that there would be resurrection on the last day and so on, and there were Jewish sects who believed in that and others that didn't, and there were controversies. And, and Jesus shows up after Lazarus' death, and he meets Martha, and, and she says, well, yes, of course, Lazarus will rise on the last day, the day of resurrection. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am the resurrection. So this is introducing an entirely different concept into the world. And empty tomb, for example. Had there been a huge resurrection expectation, the empty tomb would have tipped them off right away. It had no such consequences. They were just puzzled, actually frightened by it. So there was no category for what we now call the resurrection. As one Sarah says, it took all human thought by surprise. Now, when we say resurrection, what are we talking about? We're talking about the bodily resurrection of Christ. Christ came among his disciples physically. That is to say, he said, what's for breakfast? Stick your hand here. Look at this. You see what I mean? Physical. On the other hand, they couldn't recognize him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, Mary at the tomb, only when the breaking of the bread, they recognized him. And when he said Mary, the name Mary, she recognized him. So something very strange. This is a physical body, but a transfigured body. It's not recognizable until some kind of relationship is established. So it's a, it's a huge mystery. But what does it mean that it's a physical event, the resurrection? Von Balthasar says, here's what it means. Of all that is so familiar to us on earth, nothing will be lost in God or excluded from him. Once it has been transfigured, all that has been will remain present. Now, for the first time, its full meaning will become clear. The resurrection of the body means that creation itself will be transfigured. This is not some floating away from the material order, but the radical transfiguration of it into what it was meant to be. So there's no system of thought capable of accounting for this mystery. So we're like the proverbial blind man and the elephant, we have to approach it using different tools from different angles and to try to get some overall a sense of it. No one conceptual tool, intellectual tool, exegetical approach, and so on, none of those by themselves will do. So we have to employ them all. So we need theological thought. We need philosophical thought, anthropological thought, sacramental thought. We need poetry. We need imagery. All of these things are ways of trying to come to grips with this great mystery. And when it's all over with, and by the way, at the end of the evening, it'll still be the same. It will still be a mystery. I hope that by the end of the evening, it'll be a bigger mystery. So the point of all of this is not to solve the problem because it's not a problem, it's a mystery. The point is to wonder more about it. So what I'm going to do here tonight is to get us to wonder about it. But we have to explore this mystery not only because it deepens our own faith, but also because it makes absolutely no sense to the rest of the world. And we have the obligation of trying to account for this mystery to those who do not have faith. And I find that T.S. Eliot has said what needs to be said about this enterprise that we're about to launch into here. He said, every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure. 
And so each venture is a new beginning, a raid on the inarticulate, with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling, undisciplined squads of emotion. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. And we'll have a word to say about the unpropitious conditions of our time. But he concludes by saying, but perhaps neither gain nor loss for us. There is only the trying. The rest is not our business. So that's the approach that we'll take here. Now, the thing one needs to do is to mark out the territory, especially when one's approaching a mystery this profound, is to mark out the territory to make sure you don't overstep. So the guide rails for tonight's exploration are, number one, the creed. We have the creed. It's solid. It's not going to change. It's divinely inspired. And then we have the magisterium, which is the church's 2,000-year-old reflection on the implications of the creed. And thirdly, we have humility. You have to realize that we're not all that smart after all and, and that this is beyond us. The Holy Spirit is working with us to gradually lead us to the whole truth. And you and I are only 2,000 years into that spirit-led process. And we can't jump ahead of where we are. We have to reflect on it in terms of where we are today. C.S. Lewis once said that the purpose of structuring a moral order is to create a world in which the good can run wild. And I would say the purpose of having these guide rails for our investigation is to create a situation, not so much that theology can run wild, but at least that it can run some risk. Which brings me to my fourth of the guardrails for this activity, which is the Yogi Berra one. Yogi Berra famously said, we have to make sure we don't make the wrong mistake. So we can make mistakes, but we don't want to commit heresy. So what I want to talk about in terms of resurrection, first I want to talk about its historical implications, and then I want to talk about its eschatological implications. Christians, I think, now confront a situation much like what Paul confronted in Athens on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where he went to debate the self-styled philosophers of the age, all of whom regarded their understanding of the world as being infinitely more sophisticated than this Jew who blew into town and thought he had all the answers. So we have a situation on our hands much like Paul had. His predicament on Areopagus would have been considerably less daunting had he been trying to convince them of the immortality of the soul rather than the resurrection of the body because they were all more or less Platonist anyway. And the immortality of the soul was a time-honored understanding in the Greek world of the time. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, that's not what he had in mind. Now, I'm told by my philosophical betters, of which there are millions, that, uh, that Plato's understanding of the immortality of the soul is not nearly as narrowly defined as we often think it is. Nevertheless, the philosopher Joseph Pieper, see, I occasionally quote a Thomist here, I want you to know. Uh, the philosopher Joseph Pieper suggests an alternative to the immortality of the soul, which is the indestructibility or the imperishability of the soul. Pieper and others, by the way, including Pope Benedict XVI, have argued for the compatibility of the resurrection of the body and the immortality of the soul. 
But Pieper acknowledges that the latter idea, the immortality of the soul, can easily fade into something unworthy of Christian thought. He writes, quote, We might well agree with the Lutheran theologian Oscar Kuhlmann that, quote, now he's quoting Kuhlmann, Paul surely must have met people who could not accept his preaching of the resurrection precisely because they believed in the immortality of the soul. So the immortality of the soul does not make the resurrection of the body more easily believed. But this issue of the resurrection of the body and immortality of the soul, it seems to me, is the key for understanding late modernity and postmodernity. You would never think so. But here's where I draw that implication from Joseph Ratzinger after his dissertation on Bonaventure. He wrote a book on eschatology. Eschatology, as you know, is the study of the end times, of what happens after what? After death, after history, after the world has run its course, and so on. It's death, judgment, heaven, and hell. That's eschatology. What happens beyond this world? And Joseph Ratzinger's book on that came out in the 60s. And in that, he has a very fascinating passage, which I'm going to read to you. Whenever people adopt an absolutely fresh starting point for their investigation of historical sources, I'm going to interrupt myself because it's a long Germanic sentence here. Whenever people adopt an absolutely fresh starting point for their investigation of historical sources, what he has in mind here to some extent is the fascination, especially the new fascination in the Catholic world with biblical exegesis, which had been already practiced in the Protestant world for a century but Catholics jumped on just as it was about to run off into the ditch. Uh, that's not exactly true. I shouldn't put it that way. But in any event, there had developed a very keen interest in historical sources in terms of exegesis, which means you go back, you look at these texts, you ask questions about the technical question. Who wrote them? To what community? What was their intention? What was the theological controversy they had to grapple with? And so on and so forth. What did this word mean in this particular setting? And so on and so forth all of which uh, throws a considerable light on those texts, and it's a perfectly good thing to be doing. So that's one of the returns to historical sources. But really, I think Joseph Ratzinger is referring to the theological return to the church fathers, which was very prominent, especially in French Catholic theology, led by de Lubac and others in the mid-20th century. So that's the background of this. Whenever people adopt an absolutely fresh starting point for the investigation of historical sources, he says, this is always a telltale sign of some change in consciousness by which they are looking at reality with new eyes and so getting new answers from it. So you have an interest in returning to sources, which is a telltale sign of a change of consciousness, which is causing them to ask new questions and get new answers. In our case, he says, it is surely obvious that the sudden intensification of our capacity to pick up the eschatological undertones and overtones of the New Testament. Let me interrupt myself there. He says, in our case, it is surely obvious. He's been being extremely generous because I don't think it was obvious to very many people in the early 60s that there was an intensification of the capacity to pick up eschatological overtones and undertones in the New Testament and that it was consequential. But for Joseph Ratzinger, it was obvious and he's being generous in his expression. What he means is the New Testament opens up and it's like a Rorschach test. It doesn't give what the Supreme Court calls advisory opinions. 
uh, it only answers real questions. So each given historical epoch will have its own burning issues. And the New Testament answers those questions. It answers the burning issue questions. So if the burning issues change, you open up the New Testament, new answers leap out at you. You see what I mean? It's inexhaustible in terms of its revelatory power, but it only answers questions that have become real questions, not that are speculative, idle questions. And so he says, now we're picking up on these eschatological questions in the New Testament. Why? It must have something to do, he says, with the emerging crisis of European civilization. The emerging crisis of European civilizations has suddenly made us attentive to the eschatological implications of the New Testament. The crisis of European civilization is perfectly clear to everybody. It's called World War I and World War II and gulags and death camps and that sort of thing. For Joseph Ratzinger, it's an emerging crisis of European civilization. And as we know today, uh, he was prophetic in that regard because it continues to emerge and evolve. This has to do with the resurrection, believe it or not. Now, we'll leap from something early in Joseph Ratzinger's writing to something very recent, namely his encyclical Space Salve, in which he says, Our daily efforts in pursuing our own lives and in working for the world's future either tire us or turn into fanaticism unless we are enlightened by the radiance of the great hope that cannot be destroyed even by a breakdown in matters of historic importance. So he goes on. If we cannot hope for more than is effectively attainable at any given time or more than is promised by political or economic authorities, our lives will soon be without hope. Well, the radiance of the great hope he's talking about, of course, is the resurrection, Easter hope. That's the real audacity of hope, by the way. And without that, we will either weary of what should be a hopeful effort to make the world a better place, or we'll turn into fanatics, he said. The rising tide that lifts all boats is Easter hope. And it lifts all boats regardless in some way of whether or not people actually believe in the resurrection. Cultures that have been seriously exposed to the gospel are cultures in which there's just more hope, even for people who don't believe it. The faithful become the leaven in the loaf, and the whole culture becomes more hopeful. And in Space Alvi, again, Benedict says the crisis of faith is today essentially a crisis of Christian hope. So I want to investigate that now. There's been a diminution of Christian hope, which is obviously connected to the gradual diminution of the Christian presence in our cultural environment. But it's more interesting than that in a way. I realized last night when I was down at St. Patrick's that I'm quoting about five or six or more heavy German thinkers here. So Here's one of the Germans I'm going to quote, Gerhard von Rad, famous Old Testament scholar. And in his book on the prophets, he writes this, quote, While other Christian concepts have crumbled away, an eviscerated eschatological concept of time still lives on. Now, what is an eviscerated eschatological concept of time? It's a vague, empty, attenuated idea that there will be a fulfillment someday, somehow, somewhere. But it has no content. It's a leftover from a Christian presence. It's the ghost of Christmas past. In a way. <laughs> As Wayne O'Connor would say, it's, it's a little drop of sherry in the bottom of the glass. <laughs> so an eviscerated 
eschatology is what von Rott is talking about. He says, after all these other Christian concepts are cast aside, there's still this eviscerated eschatological idea that somewhere there'll be a fulfillment. Now, I want to investigate that. I've already quoted Joseph People. I'm going to call on him again and have him help us understand the attenuation of the radiance of the great hope that Benedict talked about or the eviscerated eschatology that von Rod spoke of. It's a historical development. Something's happening as we're de-Christianizing, and it has a whole lot to do with the resurrection. Pieper says, quote, In 1780, a year before his death, the German philosopher and dramatist Lessing, in his education of the human race, summed up the entire doctrine of Christianity in a single sentence. Quote, Christ became the first reliable practical teacher of the immortality of the soul, end quote. Fourteen years later, 1794, in France, Robespierre, the leader of the French Revolution, disciple of Rousseau, had the Revolutionary Convention promulgate the famous decree, a single paragraph in length, stating that the French nation believed in the immortality of the soul. And Pieper then gives several other examples of this, on a couple of decades either side of the French Revolution, when there was a huge emphasis on the immortality of the soul. And Pieper concludes as follows. Countless other references might be cited to show that the idea of immortality seems to have been, quote, he's quoting another source now, but quoting with approval. The idea of immortality seems to have been, quote, the real central dogma of the Enlightenment, as well as, as it has been said, quoting same source, the last vestige of personal piety still left over from historical Christianity in this period. So that great hope, which cannot be defeated even by historical catastrophes of the first order, has been replaced by this little immortality of the soul idea, which is a watered-down, attenuated form of that original belief. And this, I think, is essential for understanding the crisis of European civilization today. It's a way of tracing what has been going on for a long time. Hope has cut itself off from the New Testament. The resurrection of the body has become the immortality of the soul, this vague idea somehow that there will be a fulfillment somehow, somewhere, you see. Now, von Rod talks about the eviscerated eschatology without the Christocentric particularity of the resurrection. The resurrection was the resurrection of Christ at a certain moment in history with all the concrete particularity of it, as opposed to some vague idea of the immortality of the soul. So that's the eviscerated eschatology. It would correlate, if we go back to Benedict's formulation, that our efforts to improve the world either tire us or turn us into fanatics. Eviscerated eschatology would correlate with tiring. But we also have to look at the other option, which is turning us into fanatics. And for that, we turn to another German thinker, Eric Vogelin, who brilliantly located the problems of the late modern period in ideological crazes, utopian ideals, which he said were all efforts to, quote, immunitize the eschaton. So now we have this other phrase we have to work with. There's an eviscerated, empty, vague eschatology, and then there's an immunitized eschatology. Immanent here is the opposite of transcendent, 
and immunitized eschatology is an eschatology that has fallen to earth, that no longer believes that the kingdom is not of this world, but has come to believe that it's really just down the road. And all we have to do is pull the right levers and pulleys in terms of politics and economics and pharmacology and whatever else we have to do in order to create this paradise on earth. And these are the ideologies that turn into mass murder camps. And that's what Vogelin is investigating. He says it really has to do with immunitized eschatologies, eschatologies that are inside history. We can build this master plan universe. So both these terms suggest that the whole problem has to do with the loss of the resurrection, which is a eschatology that is incarnate in a transfigured way, but that is not of this world. It's a transfiguration of this world. So I have a couple of examples just for your entertainment. Benedict's formulation of our efforts either tire us or turn us into fanatics correlates also, I think, with that very famous thing of Yeats's about the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Uh, we're either tired or we're fanatics because we've lost this thing that buoys us up in the face of setbacks, even major ones, and that keeps us aware at all times that the kingdom is not of this world. We must try to turn this world of ours, fallen as it is, into something as closely approximating the kingdom as we can, but we must also know we're never going to do it. So an immunitized eschaton means inside as opposed to transcendent, and it can be immunitized inside the subject uh, in which you get the apotheosis of the will, a la Friedrich Nietzsche, or it can be immunitized in terms of political thing in which you get the apotheosis of the state, and they interact with each other. So I give you an example that Joseph Pieper gives, which is quite funny in a way. It's a quote from the German philosopher Fichte, so all the Germans are coming to play here tonight. In a lecture that Fichte gave on the destiny of the scholar, and you won't be surprised to discover that the scholar he had in mind was himself, he said the following, what is called death cannot interrupt my work. I have seized hold of eternity. I lift my head boldly to the threatening precipice, to the raging cataract, to the rumbling clouds swimming in a sea of fire, and I say, I am eternal. I defy your power. Rend apart the last mote of the body I call mine, and my will alone will soar boldly and coldly above the ruins of the universe. Now, this is an example of someone who's onto a truth, <laughs> but he's in desperate need of psychiatric care. <laughs> so, so um, pseudo-philosophical megalomania of a Fichte or a Nietzsche almost inevitably coincides with the political megalomania of ideological utopians like Napoleon and Lenin and Mao and Pol Pot and Hitler and Osama bin Laden. Ideologies have cut a swath through the 20th century, but the emerging crisis of European civilization continues and it has emerged beyond those kind of ideologies, I think. Like the implosion of a supernova, the philosophical hyperventilations of a Fichte or a Nietzsche, and the political megalomania of Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, and so on, collapsed first into a gauzy existentialism 
and then into frank nihilism. As Pieper points out, quote, the existentialist philosophy of absurdity that emerged in the 20th century may be merely an aching, desperate form of the same idealistic absolutizing expressed now in the modus of disappointment. Thomas Merton said most people don't have enough theological sophistication to commit a real act of heresy. And analogously, I think we could say that as the source of the great hope has been abandoned, there isn't enough hope left to fuel a respectable ideological utopia. But we still have ideologies. But today's ideologies are not driven by hijacked and misplaced hope, but rather by disguised despair and hopelessness. Not the hopelessness of poverty or political oppression, because hope can thrive under those circumstances. Last Thursday, the Pope said in Africa, Africa is the continent of hope precisely because of its challenges. And it's not the hopelessness that characterized the pre-Christian world, which was often resigned and even stoic. At the center of the two most dangerous contemporary ideologies, this has to do with the resurrection, really. At the center of the two most dangerous ideologies is a nihilistic hopelessness. It is the hopelessness of those who actively and militantly reject or renounce the greatest source of hope the world has ever known, Easter hope. So the ideologies that plague us are not eviscerated eschatologies, and they're not immunitized eschatologies. They are nihilistic eschatologies. Apropos of which, the famous sentence in Romans 5, 5.12, which has been so significant in theological history, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. In the West, with Augustine, this verse became the bedrock of the doctrine of original sin. The Eastern Fathers interpreted it in a different key. The Greek supports either interpretation, and I don't have a horse in this race, so I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Roman Catholic, but nevertheless, this is a very fascinating take. Uh, many of the Greek Fathers interpreted this same sentence the following way. As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, and because of death all men have sinned. Because of death all men have sinned. Which throws a little bit of light on the situation of a world without the resurrection. It took the resurrection to save us because fallen humanity has always sided with death against death turning death into a cure for death, eluding death by exploiting its mystique and becoming its brooding accomplice. Death remains the one thing that secularism cannot secularize. And those trapped in nihilism of one sort or another slowly, furtively, but inevitably turn death into their unspoken organizing principle. Whether fleeing from it or plunging into it, whether bound to it by fear or fascination, death eventually becomes the chief obsession of those who see it as the final incontrovertible fact. The author of the Book of Wisdom says, The wicked call in deed and word for death. With him they make a pact and are fit to be his partners. Which is a sentiment that's echoed by something Sebastian Moore, the English Benedictine, said many years ago. He said, death as ultimate horizon, let sin make as much sense as sin can make. 
Now, some friends of mine, good friends of mine, whose friendship I cherish and who have supported our work both materially and immaterially, have complained sometimes that I'm less than charitable when discussing two contemporary forms of nihilism. And I am trying to get better, striving for a more ironic approach to these matters. But there are times when one has to straight talk about these things. So I'm going to redeem what I'm now calling my brood of vipers coupon. Each month I'm going to give myself a brood of vipers coupon, which I can redeem once a month. And it's justified in the following way. Forgetting for a moment that he had come into the squalid world of sin and death in order to be an unfailingly cheerful, nice guy, Jesus once slipped up and called a brood of vipers a brood of vipers. We all make mistakes. If that was one, I'm about to repeat it. Jihadist eschatology, for all of its allusions to an anticipated paradise, is an immunitized eschatology inasmuch as the goal for which its devotees take their own lives and the lives of innocent people is the establishment of a worldwide caliphate in this world. In this salient regard, as many have pointed out, fanatical Islam belongs not to the category of world religions, but in the category of ideological utopias, a la communism and fascism. Meanwhile, post-Christian ideological secularism's lack of an eschatology eliminates both the idea of moral absolutes and the idea that we will each have to finally give a moral accounting for our lives without the hope that an eschatological horizon provides and the moral constraints that it fosters, all that is left is the primitive drive for survival, self-preservation, or for those whose eschatological instincts survive in a way that is both eviscerated and immunitized, the preservation of the planet. To paraphrase Sebastian Moore, curing disease by cloning, cannibalizing, and discarding embryonic human beings, or curing planetary problems by aborting children in the womb, makes as much sense as these things can make. The point is that nihilistic hopelessness is the driving force behind today's suicidal, homicidal, and genocidal Islamic fanaticism, just as it is the ghost that haunts the post-Christian West stainless steel death works. Not to make too fine a point, now that the decision has been made to federally fund and thereby morally endorse quote-unquote therapeutic cloning, it will soon be the case, if it is not already, that the so-called advanced post-Christian societies will be bringing more children into the world by cloning than by the conjugal act, and the vast majority of those thus brought into the world will be cannibalized for genetic material or body parts and then discarded. And so whether fleeing into death, as radical Islam is, or fleeing from it, as post-Christian secular humanism is, both of these cultures qualify as nihilistic cultures of death precisely because the intentional and premeditated killing of innocent humans is the essential and indispensable ingredient in their recipes for improving the world. So here is a palate cleanser from Rene Girard. 
Quote, Christianity is the only religion that has predicted its own failure. Gerard is so good. Christianity is the only religion that has predicted its own failure. This prescience is known as the apocalypse. And Gerard says one sentence and without comment immediately quotes the German poet Holderlin. The sentence is this. More than ever, I am convinced that history has meaning and that its meaning is terrifying. The quote from Holderlin is this. But where danger threatens, that which saves us from it grows. More than ever, I'm convinced that history has meaning and its meaning is terrifying. But where danger threatens, that which saves us from it also grows. The apocalypse, writes René Girard, does not announce the end of the world. It creates hope. We suddenly see reality and rediscover a world where things have meaning. Joseph Pieper says, truth is nothing but realities being known. What we want to know is reality. We want to know the truth. The encounter with truth is meaningful. The encounter with reality is meaningful. However sobering that reality might be, the fact that it's true is what gives it meaning. Now, the only world in which the otherwise terrifying apocalypse has meaning and creates hope is a world with a revitalized and robust eschatology, a world that knows that the kingdom is not of this world, even though we're obliged to try to form this world in as close approximation to it as we can. So now I want to talk about what precedes the resurrection and I want to do that by quoting from that famous hymn in Philippians chapter 2. And to precede that with this fundamental biblical anthropology, which is that we're made in the image and likeness of God, which is the essence of biblical anthropology. Made in the image and likeness of God means we have this imprint, the divine imprint in us, which, by the way, is what will not die. The reason the soul is inextinguishable is because it has that imprint on it. We're made in the image and likeness of God. The likeness has been corrupted by sin, but the image remains. And what has to happen is that the image has to be restored to its likeness. And that's why Christ came, to restore the image, which is indelible, to its likeness. That image of God is really the image of Christ. Christ is the revelation of the Trinity. So the image of God that we carry in us is Christ-shaped. It's a Christ-shaped hole in our heart. And Christ shows up to fill it and awaken that little spark that's planted there, see? So it's in that light that we should read this masterpiece in Philippians 2. It presupposes what we know from the prologue to John and from Colossians and other things, which is that the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, is the source of creation, that all things came to be through him. And it is in him that all things hold together. This is very high Christology. This is so high we should have a pressurized cabin for this. But we should return to high Christology because we really can't understand the deepest, most profound part of Christianity without a very high Christology. So to go to Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That's the whole point. That's why he came. That's why he pitched his tent among us so that we would get a good, long, loving look at what a real human being looks like. 
what creation is supposed to be in its human form. Let this same mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, clung to, grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, kenosis. He did not think divinity something to be clung to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also exalted him, gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This emphasis on universality here, every knee will bend and every tongue confess because this will impact everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So this sets us up for an exploration of Holy Saturday, which is the further descent. We say there is the condescension of the incarnation. Christ comes into this muddled world of sin and death in order to show us himself, to present himself to us, he comes not only into our world of sin and confusion, but he plunges even deeper into the world of death. So we have to think about that. We're told in Second Corinthians and other places that he became sin. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on sin. And what is sin? Sin is abandoning our godlikeness. So to experience sin, to take sin on, he has to not cling to his divinity, but empty himself in order to plunge into that deeper world of sin and death. Last month, I quoted Simone Day, the French mystic, who said, when a person turns away from God, he simply gives himself up to the law of gravity. He thinks he can decide and choose, but he is only a thing, a stone that falls. Wherever the virtue of supernatural light is absent, everything is obedient to mechanical laws as blind and as exact as the laws of gravity. And this is what Christ gave himself over to. And he sank under the weight of all the sin of the world. All the sin of the world. And the wages of sin is death. Now, what I'm going to do is share with you some very fascinating theology, controversial theology which comes to us by way of a collaboration of the most interesting and fascinating sort. Hansers von Balthasar was, by my estimation and by that of many other, more reliable than myself, Hansers von Balthasar was the most brilliant theologian of the 20th century, very likely of our age. De Lubach said he was the most cultured man in Europe when he was alive. You know, there's a word for people who've read every single word that Augustine wrote, liar. Yes. And, uh, and it's very true also, I think, about von Balthasar. His output is massive. It's going to take us centuries to sift it. Von Balthasar was the spiritual director for a mystic whose name was Adrian von Speer, who was a medical doctor, convert from Protestantism, and a mystic who had these unbelievably colorful mystical experiences, the kind from which most theologians would flee and von Balthasar worked with her, and he felt they were absolutely authentic. 
and to the chagrin of most of the people in the theological disciplines, he insisted that everything of his work had to be tied to things that he learned from her on the basis of her mystical experience. So it's one of these incredible things that happens in the history of Christianity where you have a collaboration, in this case, between a consecrated celibate and a lay woman, which produced the most incredibly fruitful theology, precisely the theology of Holy Saturday. So let's think about sin as being a stone that falls. Christ takes on sin and enters the realm of the dead, descends into the realm of the dead. Von Speer says the descent into hell is the underside of the crucifixion. You could say that the Paschal drama is prefigured and pre-interpreted in the Last Supper, but you could also say that the descent into hell is prefigured and pre-interpreted by the events on Golgotha. The descent into hell is what universalizes the revelation because the question is, who gets exposed to this revelation? Every tongue shall proclaim and every knee shall bend. So how do we account for the universality? Well, of course, we have to go to this most unbelievable event on Golgotha, which is the cry of dereliction. Christ says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, you can be sure he said it because the evangelist would not have put it in if he hadn't. <laughs> it did not make their work any easier. You see what I mean? They already had their hands full with somebody who is a convicted criminal, publicly executed. But then at the last moment, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can be sure he said it. The question is, what did he mean by it? And then, of course, theologians rush in to fix it. And they tell us, for example, and I'm being a little bit irreverent here. They tell us, for example, that that was only his human nature speaking. And that otherwise everything was fine. As though human nature and divine nature can be split off like that. Then there's the other interpretation, even more prevalent which is he's reciting the first line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 ends on a happier note. And Jews of the time were in the habit of saying the first line of the psalm and meaning the whole psalm. Well, I don't buy it particularly because Jesus has very little breath left. And if he has something on his mind, he should say it and not leave us with a riddle. So, I mean, it seemed to be what was on his mind was this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a real question. This is fantastic, by the way. You and I love a God who loves God. That's the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity love one another. So as we've said here before, we love a God who loves God. That's fantastic. But not as fantastic as this is. The God we love is a God who knows God forsakenness. Now, we should take evangelical advantage of that. Because <laughs> there are a lot of people who feel God forsaken. And if we can say to them, you feel God forsaken? I've got just the God for you. It's absolutely fantastic. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a real question. He does not know the answer to it. He's experiencing God forsakenness because he has to go to the place that only the God forsaken can go in order to redeem those who are there. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He asked the question, why? It is a prayer, so 
like everything else in Christianity, it's paradoxical. Christ is nothing other than his relationship to the Father. It's been said accurately, I think, that Christ prayed his life and prayed his death. He was nothing but the prayer circulating constantly between himself and his Father. And suddenly, there's no one there. And he wants to know why is this happening. He has said, not my will but thine be done in the garden. When in a way he saw this out of the corner of his eye. In the garden, he's not sweating blood because of this some kind of Mel Gibson-esque Friday afternoon. He's sweating blood because it's beginning to dawn on him that he might lose touch with his heavenly father. And on Golgotha, he does. Why is this happening? If he knew its meaning, it wouldn't be God-forsakenness. And if he knew it was only going to be temporary, it wouldn't be God-forsakenness. He experiences God-forsakenness. There's a hint of this in Isaiah 54. This is, of course... Yahweh speaking to the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel. But still you see the paradigm. Quote, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will gather you up. And then this, In overflowing wrath, for a moment, I hid my face. Now there is a definition of divine wrath. When we impute emotions to God, we must always do it with a little asterisk beside it. You see what I mean? We can't imagine that God has the kind of emotions that we have. What is wrath? Here it's defined magnificently. In overflowing wrath for a moment, because the wrath itself is driven by love. You see, In overflowing wrath for a moment, I hid my face. And I think we can impute that kind of logic to what's happening in the Paschal drama. Jesus is a substitute for us. He has taken on all the sins. There is a substitutionary quality to this, but it is not a penal substitution. With this theology of Holy Saturday that von Balthasar and von Speer have bequeathed to us, I think it will one day be possible to retain the atonement doctrines of the ancient and medieval times without the more problematic forensic and penal aspects of them. And it's always a good Catholic principle to retain things, to have something be in continuity rather than to have these things break off. So that's just a, a, a word to those budding theologians here in the room to uh, help us pursue that. As shocking as this idea is, there are many suggestions in the writings of Benedict XVI and Joseph Ratzinger uh, that he is in broad agreement with von Balthasar's uh, theology of Holy Saturday. For example, we have this uh, in his little book called Journey Toward Easter. Something more is shattered here. He's talking about Christ's death on the cross. Something more is shattered here than in any ordinary death. There is an interruption of that dialogue, which in reality is the axis of the whole world. The dialogue, which is the axis of the whole world, is the rapport between the Father and the Son. That's the engine of creation. The word, the Logos, was spoken, the created order came to be. Christ is the template, the Logos, the recipe for creation. And that recipe involves this ongoing, constant, perichoretic dialogue with the Father. And what Benedict says is that there is an interruption of that dialogue, which in reality is the axis of the whole world. You could say that 
if that interruption had obtained, had remained, the universe would have disappeared. An interruption in the very dialogue that holds the world together. You have passages in Space Salve that indicate Benedict's sympathies with this Holy Saturday theology. He says in one place, Christ descended, past tense, descended into hell and is, present tense, therefore close to those cast into it, transforming their darkness into light. A few paragraphs later, he says, God now reveals his true face in the figure of the sufferer who shares man's God-forsaken condition by taking it upon himself. When Benedict talks about Holy Saturday, he connects it to the image of the good shepherd, the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and the one who leaves the 99 to go and find the last lost one in the last lost place. That's what Holy Saturday is about, to go to find the last lost one in the last lost place. And in order to go to that last lost place, he has to empty himself of divinity in the same way that in order for us to sink to the bottom of the pool, we have to blow out all the air in our lungs. You see what I mean? Take on weight like sin that falls like a rock, as Simone Weil says. You see what I'm saying? The imagery here helps us understand something that is vastly beyond the imagery. And the question that's behind all this is this image of Christ is in us. The likeness is corrupted by sin. Christ is the one who can awaken that image. That's why he says to the two disciples in John's gospel, come and see, just hang around me. As you hang around me, that little thing will start to stir alive again. Be in my presence. So Christ has an impact on the people he actually meets in his historical life. And through the church and the sacraments of the church and so on, we encounter it as well. And we have that little spark awakened and stirred and, and brought into flame in our lives thanks to the mediation of the church and the sacraments and so on and so forth. But how about everybody else? That's the question. How about everybody else? Everybody else should have a right to this true face of the figure of the sufferer who shares man's God-forsaken condition by taking it upon himself. Who gets to have that encounter? Just those of us who are lucky enough? How about all those people that died before Christ came? How about all those people who've never heard of him or who've had such a watered-down encounter with him that it doesn't amount to anything? To become truly real, writes Benedict, means to come to know Jesus Christ and to learn from him what it means to be human. To be truly real means to come to know Jesus Christ and to learn from him what it means to be human. Well, who gets a chance to do it? That's the question. Just the people that are lucky enough to be in his path? Or does everybody get a chance? That's what the descent into hell is all about, it seems to me. Let me quote Adrian von Speer, one interesting passage. She says, For every dead person in every age, Christ is the one who is already dead. That is to say, in any age at all times. Because in the realm of the dead, the temporal chronology with which we're imbued doesn't obtain. It's not as though everything suddenly becomes in some strange way eternalized because there are events, no doubt. So we don't know how to think about it, but certainly we can't impute to it a past, present, and future chronology. So she says, Christ is for every dead person in every age, the one who is already dead. That is to say, the one whom one meets at death. For the son, she goes on to say, for the son 
has not merely carried each sinner's sins in order to redeem him, he has also died each one's death, so that all the dead might share in his being, that Christ has already died my death and your death. You know, because we're all humanists now in some way, we tend to speak in these generalities. We say that Christ died for humanity. What does that mean? Humanity, a kind of impersonal, general... You see, humanity is that thing that's very easy to love. You see what I mean? <laughs> Chesterton says you can make your friends and you can make your enemies, but God makes your next-door neighbor. <laughs> So so uh, we say Christ died for humanity. No. As St. Paul says, he died for me. He died for you. So there's something personal about this. comes out in von Speer. He also died each one's death and is the one who is already dead when one goes to the realm of the dead and who is there for the encounter. Von Balthasar says, Jesus Christ is the revelation of God and therefore the whole essence of the last things, eschatology. Gained, he is heaven. Lost, he is hell. Examining, he is judgment. Purifying, he is purgatory. To him, the finite being dies and through and to and in him, it rises. So Christ goes to the realm of the dead in order to be there when we arrive, to be encountered. And this goes back to Christology, which is Christ is the paradigm, the logos, the template, the script for creation, so that he is reality. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the resurrection. Before Abraham ever was, I am. He is reality in person. And when we die, what falls away is the fallen condition that keeps us from experiencing reality. And we encounter Christ. And the descent into hell is the part of the triduum which accounts for the fact that he has gone to that realm in order to be there when we get there. Now, Pieper says, in terms of what happens after we die, he says, we are barred from going beyond more or less plausible conjectures, which does not mean, he adds, that reason seeking explanations may not find such conjectures magnificent and be enchanted by them. So I want to conclude with a few magnificent and enchanting conjectures. This one is a theological conjecture from Aidan Nichols, who's an English Dominican. He says, The Father sends the Word, filled as man with his spirit, into the second chaos of the descent into hell. In the creation, God sends his Word into the first chaos, and creation comes to be. The Father sends his Word, filled as man with his spirit, into the second chaos of the descent into hell, so as to refocus human freedom on God and in this way reestablish the ordered beauty which ought to typify human life in God's world. That's the transfiguration of creation, which is the bodily resurrection of Christ, the transfiguration of all of creation. And then Nichols adds, the remaking of humanity in the all-representative new Adam 
is the aim of the Paschal Mystery. The remaking of humanity and the all representative new Adam is the aim of the Paschal Mystery. And to make sure everybody has access to this encounter, he meets us at death. You know, I've often said, if you imagine the conversation inside of the Trinity, what can we leave these poor people once Christ ascends? We have to leave them something to go on. Well, it has to be universal. It can't be something that only PhDs can understand. So what can we leave them? How about a piece of bread? A little piece of bread, a little sip of wine. Everybody eats. Nobody gets left out. There are no IQ requirements. You see what I mean? It's universal. A little piece of bread. And likewise, and even more radically, what else does everybody do? Everybody dies. So how about an encounter at the moment of death? And I think this is fundamentally what the theology of Holy Saturday helps us understand. Christ is the form, the image, the icon of the living God in whose image and likeness we were made and whose indelible image survives the sin that has deformed the likeness out of all recognition. It is the encounter at death, if not before, with the Logos that arouses the image that corresponds to it by which we have been marked. At the moment of death, all of the things that we put up to fend off reality and its demands on us drop away and we encounter reality. That reality, I think, as a Christian who believes in the high Christology of the Logos, that reality is Christ. And so the descent into hell is Christ planting the flag, which is the cross, at the bottom of hell. If you're going to plant the flag on Mount Kilimanjaro, you have to go to the top to do it. And if you're going to plant it in the last lost place to save the last lost soul, you have to go to the bottom to do it. So the descent into hell is the sweep of the redemptive act, searching out the last lost sheep. And that last lost sheep still has the capacity to refuse the offer. Dare we hope all men are saved. Let us pray that nobody is so stupid in the presence of the loving Christ to refuse that offer. So here are a few little poems that are, as Pieper says, magnificent and enchanting conjectures. One couldn't conclude a conversation like ours tonight without quoting Rilke's famous poem. The leaves are falling, falling as from far, as though above were withering farthest gardens. They fall with a denying attitude. And night by night, down into solitude, the heavy earth falls far from every star. We are all falling. This hand's falling too. All have this falling sickness, none withstand. And yet there's one who's gently holding hands. This universal falling can't fall through. He meets us in death. He is not just these gently loving hands, but he is the flaming sword and the winnowing fan because we, encountering him, must account for the gifts we've been given and how we've used them. So this is not all warm and fuzzy here. There's judgment. Then there's this poem that's always touched me. Thomas Merton lost his brother in World War II. 
He was killed, and it was several months before they recovered his body. And Merton wrote this, I think, before the body had been recovered. My own father was killed in World War II, and I've always liked this poem for that reason. I read two sections of it. Merton is really writing to his brother, but you could place these words in the mouth of Christ. And that's why I want to read them to you. They go like this. Come, and in my labor find a resting place, and in my sorrows lay your head. Or rather, take my life and blood and buy yourself a better bed. Or take my breath and take my death and buy yourself a better rest. At the end of that poem, Merton concludes with four lines which we can imagine saying ourselves, as he said on behalf of himself and his brother. He says, when all the men of war are shot and flags have fallen into dust, your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. It's like von Speer saying, he has died each of our deaths already. When our hour, H-O-U-R, comes, we will be able to simply join him in it. And when Merton writes this poem, he's talking about crosses on the graveyard. Your cross and mine shall tell men still Christ died on each for both of us. One final Merton poem, one in which Merton conflates Easter and spring, as many people have done, of course. Think about that image of the divine that's implanted in us as creatures who are made in the image and likeness of God. He says, For like a grain of fire smoldering in the heart of every living essence, God plants his undivided power buries his thought too vast for worlds in seed and root and blade and flower until in the amazing light of April, surcharging the religious silence of the spring, creation finds the pressure of his everlasting secret too terrible to bear and the earth blossoms forth. In the spirit of von Balthasar's famous or infamous little book entitled Dare We Hope All Men Are Saved, we can ask, dare we hope that the spirit that smolders like a grain of fire in our hearts, covered over by sin and selfishness, will in the warmth of that final April, upon hearing the voice of the Good Shepherd and seeing in Benedict's words the true face of the sufferer who shares man's God-forsaken condition by taking it upon himself, dare we hope that all at that moment will find the persuasiveness of his everlasting invitation too heart-rending and beautiful to decline. The contrite heart that is the result of this heart-rending encounter with reality will finally make it possible for the indelible image to be restored to its pristine likeness, worthy of admittance into the Trinitarian mystery. At that moment, the Torah, written on our hearts, will become the eternal Logos, finally written on our foreheads. As John of Patmos says in the book of Revelation, they shall see his face and his name will be on their foreheads.
In Christ, Adrian von Speer says, death becomes an instrument of life. Or to put it another way, death is under new management. Dante notwithstanding, the grim ferryman at the river Styx has been replaced by the good shepherd who is himself the sheep gate. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging, a holy rest and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work. Our work.